So I would say managers have to work on their coaching skills Mm -hmm. to truly hone in on if the issue is really the issue. And if it's not, you as a professional has to say, I don't think this is the issue. This is Taking the Lead, a podcast for B2B tech professionals, leaders, and executives who want to learn from female icons in the tech industry. In each episode, host Christina Brady interviews women who are driving revenue for some of the most respected tech companies in the world. Are you ready to get inspired? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I'm Christina Brady. I am the Chief Strategy Officer of Sales Assembly. I am very excited today to be sitting down with Lauren Goldfinger, who is the Shared Services Enablement Manager for SalesLoft. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's I'm excited to have you here because I don't get to talk to women in enablement very often, certainly at your level. And so the crux of our conversation today is just kind of, I'm going to be just farming you <laughs> for your <laughs> tips and tricks and expertise because Lord and I, before I hit record, we're just talking about the fact that especially right now in B2B tech, probably a vast majority of companies have somebody in an enablement function, maybe more than one if you're really, really lucky or have a lot of funding or you don't have somebody in an enablement function. So that means it's on your frontline leadership to be sort of picking up on all those responsibilities and it's tough to do. So we're gonna be farming Lauren for her experience today and hopefully filling in some incredible enablement gaps for all of you. But before we do that, Lauren, I would love to just hear your story and your professional journey and what got you where you are. Tell us the story. Yeah, I feel really lucky, really, really grateful for how I got here. I started working in learning and development about 10 years ago, kind of by accident. I was a new hire at a satellite imagery company and I went into a training on a personality profile, similar to DISC, something like that. Yes. And I learned so much about myself and I, I, my facilitator was so great at kind of pulling that out of me and helping me make connections about why I do what I do and how I work, why I work. And I thought it was fascinating. And I left that session feeling like I truly learned something that I could take out into the world, both professionally and personally. And I just wanted to do that for other people. I I wanted to be able to help them in a meaningful way at work and then also at home. And I had been in HR and kind of process transformation and always in, you know, account services and and customer success. But this to me just felt right. Like I could be up there. I should be up there facilitating this learning and helping people have these conversations and get these connections clicked together. So that's, I just dove in, started, you know, put together a project plan for revamping a new hire onboarding and orientation. It went really well. (laughs) And then I just started from there, I started learning, teaching myself, creating content, diving into instructional design, adult learning theory, leadership development. And then that kind of led me to focus solely in sales and then most recently customer success. So that's kind of the the journey. Oh my gosh. So right now you are in obviously an enablement role, but you support customer success. 
I am uh, mostly committed to enabling um, consulting services, mm. sales engineers, and value engineers. So oh, kind of this, you know, similar types of enablement, I would say, to what CS needs, which is all a little bit different than the enablement that AEs usually need. Okay. And when you were going through your journey, the thing I find most remarkable about what you did is it felt like it was so self-driven and like you had to uncover a lot of your own knowledge and figure out what you had to learn to get the skill set to do the job well. Did you have mentorship or guidance or are you just that driven that you were able to be like, here's what I don't know. I'm going to go get it. <laughs> no, I had a great team around me. So in, in that particular role, I had two teammates who are now very good real life friends of mine and definitely took me under their wing and, and taught me uh, the ways. And we had a lot of flexibility and freedom within our role in learning and development at this company to just go out to the business and figure out what they needed and deliver it to them. So a lot of that came in the way of like off the shelf training, right? So we would go out mm -hmm. and get certified in learning programs and then we would deliver them out. But as we continue to do that, just, you know, learning myself, how could we take that and, and do it ourselves? and put our own spin on these trainings and take what our perspective is, make it specific to our company, that's kind of what sparked my, my learning. But Kimberly and Ames really helped me all along the way and still do. I mean, we all need the advocate, right? It's like there's, it's the hidden people in our journeys that help us. And I love that you were able yes. to give a name to that because it's important that we call each other out when we've had help or when we have helped. Okay, so to kind of ground the conversation, when did the word enablement first start to make its way into, call it the nomenclature, right? Because I feel like even, even a decade ago, the first time I came across somebody who was in enablement, I remember thinking, I don't know what that is. Like, is that, are you a trainer? What are you, an enablement still? Like when you say to some companies, like, oh, I'm in enablement, they're like, well, what is that? When did you start to settle into that as an actual role and see it start to become a little more normalized? It's a good question. So I would say about, you know, five years ago, I kind of moved into sales training and there was a very mm -hmm. clearly divided line between what sales training did and the enablement team that sat within the PMO. And so okay. that's kind of where I started to understand, okay, so I'm going to do training maybe initially, almost like a go-to-market training, but on things like soft skills and competencies. And then my enablement yeah. counterparts who sit in the business are going to do reinforcement and kind of take that to scale and make sure that the field is using what it was I had taught initially. So that I think back then was kind of the difference between enablement kind of sat in the business. And I think they provided a lot of day-to-day -day support, a lot of, you know, resources and materials. And then training kind of came in and said, but wait, you need more than just product information and you need more than just systems and tools training because selling is different now. So let's train on methodology, on frameworks, on, you know, all of those kind of soft skills that you need. So that to me is now what I'm trying to do. I want to, I think that enablement needs to do all of that, right? It has to be the product launches with the job aids and the, um, you know, go to market training, but it also needs to be 
how do I sell? What is value selling? What is my methodology? How do I prove myself as credible? How do I lead with insight? That's a big piece of it. So now I feel like enablement needs to, if it's not already, needs to encompass all of it. <laughs> it's such a robust job. And it's almost like, like part of me was like, I'm just going to ask, like, how do you define enablement? And then I realized it's not really fair because one, it is such a robust role. But two, do you find that companies define enablement maybe broadly, really similarly, but on almost the, the micro level, very, very differently? Like enablement in what they do at one company may not be what they do at another. Do you see that on your end too? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are some organizations where enablement really is just kind of product driven. Here are the resources you need, customer facing documents, battle cards. And I think there are other places where enablement is more all encompassing and really dedicated to whatever, you know, supporting whatever the, the company's OKRs and goals are. Um, I wonder if sometimes that's driven just by the size of the organization and the ah. ability to have an enablement team, right? If you have a small team and you really need to focus on the most important ways to enable, it's probably going to be more of the foundational basic stuff to push out to sales reps to help them be successful. I think the larger your team, the more ability you have to kind of start to move into some of those other areas of enablement or training. Got it. That has to make it really hard to, if you're on the market looking for a job and you're an enablement practitioner or leader, it has to be hard to either find a job as a candidate or even hire for it because it feels like the experience would be so broad and so vast. Yeah. And, you know, and I know that enablement professionals come from many, many different places. And I think that yeah. learning and development is not one of the more common places it comes from. I think it comes from sales people and sales leaders and marketing people and product people. So there's definitely a large <laughs> skill set and a large variance in the, the types of skills that you have within one enablement department. It's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and and so needed. And it's funny that you say that a lot of them don't come from learning and development, because when you look at what the industry has shifted into, it seems like that would be the perfect place for them to come from. Like, for example, one of my best friends in the world um, was a teacher. And we know that teachers in this country are not paid well enough and they are overworked and they don't have resources. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to stand on my soapbox and say that for a minute. So naturally, she's <laughs> like, I have to, <laughs> she's like, this is my opportunity. No, she's like, I have to get, you know, she's like, I, I, I can't support my family on this. I'm not happy anymore. And she's like, what do you think I should do? And I was like, well, you come from a teaching background. You come from understanding how the brain learns. You, you should look at doing mm -hmm. some type of enablement. And now she actually does. But to your point, so many people don't come from that background. And do you find that having a learning and development background makes you a stronger enablement professional? Or is it is it better if you come from something like sales or something like product marketing and move into it? Or does it not matter? That's a that's a challenging a question. I, I'm sorry, I threw a big one at you. <laughs> because you know, because personally, I do feel like having a learning and development background gives me a bit of an edge yeah. um, because I bring what I feel like is a different perspective. Ooh. So I would say yes, <laughs> but I do think it takes all kinds. It takes a really well-rounded team with well-rounded skills to be able to think through all of the different facets of how you enable, right? It's not just 
going out and training people. It's not just, you know, understanding how the brain works and learns, although I do think that's really, really important. But you need, you know, the the ex-sales people and ex-sales leaders to say, well, this actually doesn't resonate with the field, or actually I didn't do it this way, or, you know, be able to come to a training and bring that firsthand credibility that maybe I can't always bring. Ooh, yeah. Okay. You dug into two things there that I want to dive into. I can't tell which one I want to do first. So I'm just, you said you have a unique perspective. I want to hear about your unique perspective. Dive more into that. Uh, Well, I mean, I guess it's up to others to decide if it's a unique perspective, right? I'm going to say that it is. Um, I'm going to say that it is. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So (laughs) appreciate that. I, you know, I think that for me, I do approach enablement differently because I am truly focused on how the people learn and how the brain works. So you can't just do a one and done training. People are never going to remember it, right? There's the curve of forgetting, (laughs) which is an L&D, you know, philosophy. So I think that traditionally there was a lot of one and done training. There was a lot of lecture-based training, a lot of teaching too, but really the way the adult brain works, all brains work really, is that it's a pull from, right? It has to feel personal. It has to hit the affective part of your brain, the psychomotor part of your brain, the cognitive part of your brain in order to truly change your behavior and your mindset. And so I think that when I think about it from that perspective, I am able to bring a perspective of here's what a good training go-to-market rollout and evolution into reinforcement looks like. It's not a one and done, and it's definitely not lecture-based. We have to be doing things differently if we truly want to change the way people work. This, I'm I'm lighting up because I, I, have, no, <laughs> I have no degree in it whatsoever, but I light up around the idea of just like the psychology of how people learn and communicate. And when you said like the way adults learn, I actually do think that there's something to that, right? Because when you think about a traditional training, like if I said, we're going to come into your company, we're going to do a training, what you'd likely picture is a bunch of people, maybe not anymore, but in the old days, (laughs) sitting in a room together, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Like while somebody stands up front and they have a slide deck and they go through the slides and maybe there's a couple questions and everyone gets up and they leave. And I think that's what we all think training is. But when you talk about adult learning, there's so many different ways that adults actually learn. I think lecture is one of them. Yeah. But along the lines of, of teaching to adult learners and then doing content that sticks, right? You can't tell right. somebody how to do something one time. You need to have repetitive. So what are some of the other ways in your perspective that you can actually ingrain learning or skills or foundations outside of just sit in a desk with a pen and write down what I'm saying? What, what's some of the other things you can do? Yeah, there's a lot that you can do. And I think that you're right. There are people who learn by watching and by listening and they see something and it sparks their interest and they say, oh, okay. And they can take their notes and go out and start to use that. But that is certainly not everybody. So I think that it's really important to start very foundationally. You do have to start with with a basic training, right? Here's what it is. Here's why it matters. Here's why you need to sell it. Here, you know, whatever that context is, as an introduction. So you do get that um, that familiarity with this is a thing now. But then the reinforcement piece is the piece that's really important. You kind of have to take 
your your reinforcement training levels deeper so that you are starting very broad and high level. Here's what it is. And then you're saying, but now let's do a smaller training that's focused on how you will use it specifically in your role. And then maybe let's do role plays and let's do deep dive practice and let's do learning labs and put you in immersive scenarios that you really deal with every day to make sure that when you are confronted with a given situation, you know how to handle it. So it's kind of taking that broad foundational level knowledge and just continuing to take it a layer deeper every time you talk to that audience so that it really hits home into how they live and work every day. I think you listed out one of the things that is so polarizing. Everyone says you need to do it, but then most people are afraid of it and that's role playing. And I agree with you around this idea that like, I can watch something a hundred times and I think I've got it, but it's that whole idea of like, if I wrote something, I can read it in my mind, but then the first time I read it out loud, I'm tripping over my words and I'm like, oh, that didn't quite sound right. I don't like it. Like the importance of role playing and actually doing something physically with your body and your voice in practice before you go is like, without a doubt, one of the most valuable things that you can do. And yet, if you get into a room full of salespeople or leaders and you're like, guess what? We're going to role play today. It's like half of them leave the room. Someone just got <laughs> stomach flu. Like you will never see like, like a faster dusting in a room <laughs> when you're like, we're going to do a role play exercise, but it's so important. So how, one, do you see resistance to that? And two, have you been able to overcome it? Because it is so important. I have seen resistance to it. Although I think there's a lot less resistance when you do it online. I think that a Zoom room um, is a lot less um, scary than actually standing in a room with someone. And I don't, I don't know why that is, but that's the feeling that I get. There are so many ways to make role plays less scary, right? So one is to give them the scenario in advance so they have time to think about it and maybe practice on their own. Another way would be Ooh, to put them okay. in small groups. Right. So small group role plays where you have, you know, three or four people and you give them a script. So they're kind of reading back and forth and role playing that way, or they're answering questions and coming up um, with answers together as a group. And then they can come back and they can read out or role play to a larger group. So I think it's less intimidating if you say, okay, here's the activity. And maybe you don't say the word role play at all. Right? <laughs> if you say, here's the activity, right. you're going to go into small groups and you're going to practice. And then you're going to come back and you're going to designate one person to actually go and do the thing with the whole group. So I think peer-to-peer -peer learning is really, really important and we don't do enough of it, but people learn from each other and they want to know what their peers are doing. So if you can put them together and give them time to collaborate and brainstorm and work together, I think it's less scary than sitting in a chair in front of a room full of people with a facilitator <laughs> going through a discovery call. <laughs> right, and like, you're the rep, you better nail it. Everyone's watching you and critiquing you in person. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, I think it's up to the, to the facilitator to really create a safe environment as well. Just really having the conversation of, hey, you guys, we're here to practice. We're here to mess up. We're here to give honest feedback so that you know, if we're screwing up, we're screwing up around our peers and we can laugh about it and practice and not screw up when we're in front of our prospects and customers. So I think setting that tone from the beginning yeah. helps a lot. 
I mean, you talk about making it a safe space to learn, which means you have to make it a safe space to make mistakes and not be perfect. And I actually think not enough people do that when they are trying to engage adults in learning, right? Because the idea is I'm not in school. I'm at my job that I'm supposed to already be a professional at. And in most cases, if you have your entire team in a learning, the leader is there too. And so I also think there's this really strange pressure of, I know I need to learn this, but if I accidentally show that I'm not good at it right now, that could actually hurt me personally and professionally, because all of a sudden I am exposed that I am not good at this skill set, which we just talked about is completely core and paramount to the job that you're paying me to do. It's like resistance has to come in there. Yeah. You know, it, yes, I think you're right. We all want to be really great, right? At our jobs. We want to be perfect. We want others to see us as the shining beacons of what good looks like. Um, (laughs) and so, so yes, you're right. I think there's a couple ways, again, that you can kind of start to combat that. One is just simply exposure. The more you get people together and the more you get them talking, the more comfortable they're going to start to be with each other. You could also have leaders participate in a really fun way where perhaps if you are working on a, a pitching role play for a new product, that leader does a really quick video of a pitch that isn't so good. And maybe Ooh. you start the session by, sh- by showing that and then, you know, giving a little bit of a rubric for people to use. Like, did they do this? Did they do that? What was good? What wasn't good? And that can be a fun way to show that not everybody's perfect, right? It's all going to take practice and open lines of communication. So that along with, you know, video practice on your own before you come into the large group, I think are all things that can help. I love that idea. It's almost like it's a different way of learning by pointing out what's wrong. And it's almost like, yeah, if you can show somebody the wrong way to do it, you hope that they're going to connect the dots and be like, oh man, I did that on a call this morning. I probably shouldn't do that. Good (laughs) thing I didn't do it in front of my manager. So like that was full, like chalked full of incredible tips of just different ways that you can learn, but again, making it comfortable to learn. Like I remember feeling the resistance to learning. And I think it was a lot of that. It was, I'm in person, I'm in front of my boss. I don't know how to do this. I'm uncomfortable. I'm an introvert, so many different things, a lot of tips there. And then it kind of leads me to, maybe this is even higher level, but is it hard to sometimes determine what learning paths you put people on? Because I'd imagine, especially in a professional setting, everyone's in a different place. So how do you determine where to start? What skills do you focus on? As an enablement professional, they look to you, but you've probably got people that are all over the map. So how do you how do you balance those two things? It's a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I you know, I think it I think it depends a lot on what you are enabling on and kind of the specifics of that. So I think generally overall, it's good to just have a an enablement framework right? A playbook, a way in which you say, okay, we're at this stage and we do these things in this stage. And if you create like a really simple one where you say, our enablement framework is first you do on-demand learning on your own in our LMS to get a foundational baseline. Then you do some practice either online or on your own or with the peer pod. Then you come to a live training where we really dive in and we practice in whatever way we feel Uh, we should. And maybe it's not immersive practice. Maybe it's a roundtable discussion or a 
um, fireside chat or some other means of getting information across. And then that final step should be some sort of field work. So you've learned about it, you've practiced it on your own, you've practiced it with a group, and now we want you to go out and do it. And then you come back and you share how that went, right? So mm. I think that's a pretty good basic overall structure, regardless yeah. of what it is that you are enabling on. Yeah. Um, if you are enabling on a product or a feature release or something like that, you know, that that's much more cut and dry. This is what you have to know about it on a broad level. And then, you know, for me, I focus on the perspective of sales engineers, value engineers, consulting services. So what do I need to do to take that broad training and make it applicable for what my engineers do every day? And so I think it's easier to do that type of a training. If we're talking about skills and competencies, it is more challenging. And I think you have to really dive into where are they at now? And so getting together with your stakeholders and having a true deep kind of performance consultation where the questions to the stakeholders are, why do you feel like they need this? What are they not doing? What do they need to start, stop, continue doing? How are you going to know if you've seen success? What is their level right now and how can you determine what their level is? Those types of questions can lead you to a basic understanding of where, where we think they're at. And then we can kind of create content from there. The other way to do it is to create learning paths all digitally, all online, right? Using LinkedIn oh, yeah. learning or creating paths in Lessonly or however, you know, your LMS or, or your department works, you can create paths that are just curated for the skill. And, oh, okay, you want to learn about objection handling. Here is an online digital path. And you can go follow it. So a couple different ways. Um, and I... I, I may be so bold. You could probably, do you have some companies where they do all of those things because they're all needed, like meeting people where they are? Yeah. 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 Yep. You know, and I think it could be really, it could be as simple as internally you curate a list. Here's a couple of online courses. Here's a Udemy. Here's, mm -hmm. you know, something as simple as TED Talks, HBR articles. Yeah. Here are the best online free resources that you can go out and learn on your own. That's a really simple way to do it if you don't have access to an LMS or an online learning system like LinkedIn Learning or Lessonly or Udemy or things like that. Got it. And have yeah. you? And then maybe you do all of it, right? Yeah. Maybe yes. If you're like truly Just being thorough, yeah. <laughs> then your, your pre-work is going to be online learning. And then your you know, your practice is going to be maybe reading these HBR articles, but there's so many different ways that you can incorporate all of it. And again, now you're talking to all of the different ways the brain learns. Do you learn by reading? Do you learn by watching videos? Do you learn by doing the thing or sitting with your peers? Oh my gosh. And you, you can probably, with all those different mediums, find ways of reinforcing the learning by hitting on it more than once, right? Because we talked about, you can't just teach somebody one thing one time and they've got it, right? No, it's like you have to find different ways to cement that. So by doing it in those different formats in more of a curriculum-based type of thing, they're also hearing those same things multiple times and they're cementing that learning. Yep. That yeah. sounds super easy to do in large organizations. <laughs> just <laughs> step-by-step, super Piece easy. Piece of cake. <laughs> Piece of cake, right? 
It's going to be easy. Speaking of things that are a piece of cake, do you ever run into scenarios where leaders don't know what their people need, don't know what their gaps are? Like they're having a hard time diagnosing why their team may be underperforming. I've seen that happen. And that's a tough one. It's got to be tough to be in a position as an enabler where you're slightly removed from the team, but you're working with a leader that doesn't have the skills that they need to identify what their team needs. And Mm -hmm. what do you do in that moment? I think you, you have to do a few different things. One, going back to just solid performance consulting, keep asking why, keep diving in, right? Keep really Mm -hmm. asking the same question. Sometimes you have to ask the same question a bunch of different ways. How do you know that this is what they need? Give me examples, give me anecdotes, show me data. And then, you know, (laughs) from there, I think there's also a level of, of manager coaching that sometimes has to happen. So sometimes we as learning and development professionals, I'd say more than enablement professionals, but we as learning and development professionals sometimes have to say to the best of our knowledge, like this is not a training issue, right? So the better performance consulting you could do and the better you could ask those questions, the more you as a professional can determine, is it really a training? issue. And a lot of that just takes practice, right? You hear them say something or they can't really answer the questions and you just know, right? It's, it's, a, it's a coaching issue or it's a data integrity issue or it's a process issue. So I think by asking all of those good questions up front, you can help them identify, is it truly trading? And if it's not, then you have to say, I'm not sure this is a training issue. Let's try ABC first and then we can re-examine training later. But I think that the better coaches managers are, the closer they are to truly knowing what their people need. So if you're spending time with your team members and truly asking them, how are things going? You know, Let's talk about this discovery call you did. What went well? What didn't go well? What would you change? Can I offer my suggestions? and you're having those conversations, then you get a lot closer to what the root cause could possibly be. So I would say managers have to have to work on their coaching skills mm-hmm. to truly hone in on, on if the issue is really the issue. And if it's not, you as a professional has to say, I don't think this is the issue. And that's hard. I mean, that's, I mean, if you're, like if you're sitting with a VP of sales, who's very experienced and they're telling you the issue I'm seeing on my team is a training issue. And you're in a position where you have to push back. That's not, that's not an easy thing to do. That's, that's a pretty scary thing. It is. And I, I don't, I'm not, I don't think the answer is no, we're not going to do this. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I think the no. answer is not yet. Right? Mm. Let's try these other things first. And if those don't work, let's go to training, right? Because there are probably things, little things that can get done faster, easier, with less resource, with less time. So before you jump right to training, let's see if there's other things we could do first. So it's not a no. It's never like, a, we're not going to do that for you. We're not going to enable you on right. this product release. It's not that, yeah. right? It's not... Yeah, we're not going to teach your people how to do objection handling or negotiation skills, but it's maybe let's try these other little things first before we go ahead and create like a big training event that's going to take time and resource and, you know, and then, yeah, other times 
maybe you do just have to suck it up and say, okay, fine, we're going to do this. <laughs> anyway, I mean, it's, it's I try to minimize those like, okay, times. Okay, we'll right. do it. Okay. Right. There, um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, there are just some times when the, the directive comes down and you're going to do the training and you might know in your gut that it's not the right thing or they're not going to see the results. And I think you have to surface those those concerns to the best of your ability in the beginning. And then sometimes, yeah, you have to do what they want. <laughs> yeah, well, you're hitting on, I think to me is like the core of a learning focused company is understanding the difference between coaching and training. And what you're getting at is that a lot of mm. people don't get the difference between those two things, right? They think coaching is training. Like when I'm coaching my reps, I'm training them. And it's like, no, you're reinforcing the training. And there's a difference, right? There's, yes. you've been given the training. We trained you today on objection handling, specifically the tactic of ARP, right? Acknowledge, respond, and pivot. We had a whole training on that. You've been given it, you role played it, you practiced it. And now you're on a call with a customer and it's not going well. Right. And if that leader comes to you and they say they still don't get it, you have to train them again. It's no, 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 no. They have the foundation. Now you're coaching to where they're missing, like, like firm up the muscle, give them some new talk tracks. Like coaching can only work if it's reinforcing foundational training. They work hand in hand and so many people don't get that. And then you have to sit there and be like, okay, we'll train them again. <laughs> but same thing's yeah. going to happen. <laughs> no, you're right. Manager coaching is, I would say, the yeah. most important piece of all of this, whether you're training or enabling yes. and it, you know, whether it's product yes. releases or tools or soft skills, we as enablement professionals can only do so much. We will train you. And if we, you know, have the bandwidth, then maybe we can help you coach your teams via office hours or things like that. But the manager coaching piece is the piece that's going to make or break a training and make it successful or not. Okay. And I hate to put that on leaders, but I do think enablement can make it easy for leaders to coach. So one of the things that we do at SalesLoft is we provide each of our leaders with a learning reinforcement toolkit. So for every initiative that we roll out, whether it's products, you know, launch, feature-based or soft skills, competency stuff, we do the initial go-to-market training and then we will create a toolkit for our leaders that are specific to their teams. And the toolkit is really about here is how you reinforce this training they just got. Here are the mm. slides that you need to present to them in a team meeting. Here are the questions that you should ask if you're going uh, and listening to calls with them. It's like a manager in a box kit, plug and play. It's the same toolkit every time, just with the applicable content from that initiative so that we could send it out and say, here's how you go and reinforce. I mean, that's incredible. And it's like, I, I double tapping on the fact that like, manager coaching, leaders coaching their direct reports. It, it won't work if you don't have that. And don't forget, in enablement organizations where you have multiple levels of enablement leadership, you're having to eat your own dinner on that too, right? Like you're having to also support yes. your people as they support their organizations and you're having to coach your enablement direct reports so that they're doing a great job. But like that coaching element, it's like if companies get that wrong. Um, it can be catastrophic. I think it's a good thing that you 
point that out, that it's a critical piece of it. And knowing how to coach, if you don't have any way to learn how to be a better coach, you got to find that out, right? Get involved in the tools that you have. Look to your networks, look to your resources, like subtle plug for sales yep. assembly, right? If you're a part of our community already, like you have people there who can help you, yeah. but ultimately focus on being a great coach. I love that. Oh, yeah. And well, coaching doesn't have been, to be hard. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like as leaders, we think, oh, coaching, like, I don't know how to do that. What if I screw up my people? I don't have time. And in coaching, even though it is the most, I would say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say it, one of the most important pieces of a leader's job is coaching. It is also oh. often the very first thing that they don't do because of time and priority and commitments yes. and resource. But it is critical. And there is so much data out there that supports how well teams perform, how much better teams perform and individuals perform when they are being coached. It doesn't have to be, be hard, right? Coaching could be as simple as, what do you think you did well? What do you think you would do differently next time? May I offer you my feedback as well? Start there. Right. And it just opens up a conversation. And then if you were to Google coaching, you know, there are frameworks, there are models, there's the grow model where it's just really easy to follow the list <laughs> and say, okay, mm -hmm. first I'm going to ask this and then I'm going to ask that. And it doesn't have to take a lot of time either. So nobody needs hour long coaching sessions. You know, maybe it's just in the moment or maybe it's 15 minutes after a proposal presentation. So start small would be my advice. I feel like we could do an entire episode now <laughs> on this because you just started talking about methodologies, yeah. making my heart sing again. Like let's, you know, but yeah, start, <laughs> start small. I think it can be overwhelming, but it's, it is a core aspect of leadership. Do not be a people leader if you don't want to learn how to coach your people well and spend the time and the emotional bandwidth to do it. You have to. I agree. hundred percent. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I am excited to get to our final piece of it, which is the rapid reveal. If you're up for it. Yes. Okay. Bring it on. Great. All right. We've got five <laughs> questions. You have 60 seconds or less to answer them. And this is just like always, meant to have a little fun, get to know you a little bit better. There's at least one question in here that I ask everybody. Maybe I'll write a book one day. I don't know. We'll dive into <laughs> it. So All number right. one, bring it on. Like the whole last 40 minutes, notwithstanding, what was the last advice that you gave someone? I gave advice to somebody either this morning or yesterday afternoon to cut out the whole first paragraph of an email because it was... <laughs> Just, it just, it was a bunch of context that the, the recipients of the email had already received like three times. So just get rid of it. I, there's a, a, a framework, a theory that's called bluff, bottom line up front. And it's, it's, I think that has like military roots, but the idea is that in an email or in a Slack or something like that, bottom line up front, most important details in the ask up front, and then you provide the context after. So if it is not 100% critical to know in this email, take it out or at least put it at the end. Okay. 
My favorite thing about what you just said was first, it sounded like a preference thing. And then you rooted it to a methodology and gave a reason why, which again, shows how enablement focused your mind is. You're like, I gave advice to cut out a paragraph <laughs> because there's a scientific methodology. About, and then you went, and I was like, oh, there's like so much more to this. I love that. Great. So that's just yes. your preference. Yes. No, I, I like to it. back everything that up, like with data, metrics, measurements to the best of my ability, no matter what I say. <laughs> like, what would the world be if we all just did that? All right. Switching gears. Number two. What's an irrational fear of yours? I have an irrational fear that my eight-year-old, Ayla, uh -huh. is going to be on a cruise ship and okay. she is going to throw herself over the railing into the ocean, oh. which is completely irrational because I never plan to take her on a cruise ever yeah. because yeah. that's the fear. Right. You're never going to be on a boat with her. I think about it. Nope. Yep. Yep. That's, that's it. She's, she's the one that's going to be like, huh, let's see how many triple double flips I could do down into the ocean. So. Right. And it's yeah. water on the bottom. Yep. So I'll be fine. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, but okay. I'm not taking her on a cruise. So that's why I'm it's irrational. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, never. I'm never going to put myself in a position where that could even be possible and such right. she'll never come true. <laughs> right. But I think about uh, it all the time. It's very yeah, strange. That's what these irrational fears do to us, right? They like, they, they sit in our minds. I'm like, why do I keep thinking about that? I don't know. I don't All know. right. Do you have any unique skills? I don't think so. <laughs> no. Uh, so maybe not unique skills, but I am, I am on a, a trivia, a bar trivia team. My girlfriends and I go play every okay. few weeks. We play Geeks Who Drink trivia. Mm -hmm. um, and I am there solely for pop culture. That okay. is my skill in trivia, music, movies, song lyrics, um, pop stars. So I guess if I had a unique skill, it would be my ability to win trivia, the pop culture. That's phenomenal. So if you're on Jeopardy and that's one of the categories, you're going to rock that category. The other ones, maybe not so much, but that one, yeah. you're in a nail and not that's so pretty much. cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be yeah. terrible. Math, all forget about it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I just can't answer questions <laughs> under pressure. So I can sit home and bark at this, the Jeopardy screen and be like, that was so easy. But in the, I'd freeze. <laughs> I would absolutely freeze. Yeah. It's hard. Um, in the, it's hard in the moment to be like, stop yeah. talking so I can remember the song lyric or the name right. of the song or. Yeah, you know. I would fail. <laughs> can't do it. Nope. All right. Number four. What was the last great thing you accomplished that no one knows about? <laughs> this. So you might appreciate this. I, after, you know, a couple of years of buying this house and living in it have finally cleaned out the front hall closet. Okay. And when you open the closet, I mean, there was stuff coming down from the top. There was stuff coming out from the bottom. There were coats that, you know, would fit toddlers. My kids are not toddlers, but I think what makes it such a great accomplishment is not that I did it, but why I did it. I did it so that I could turn the coat closet into a closet to display all of my handbags. And it's okay. beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> How did you know I would like that? If you want to know, <laughs> if you are listening and you want to know why Lauren and I would just suddenly like smiled at that one, hit us up personally on LinkedIn. But I feel that I did something similar with my closet to display them. We'll talk yeah, about that after this. Amazing. Like, I, now I need to see a picture of it. Please send me a picture of it. I need to I see. Will. 
Um, and number five, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a writer, a fiction oh. writer. I spent my whole childhood just reading and writing. I went to school for creative writing and journalism. I felt like that was my world. I was going to be a writer. Oh, do you do any writing now? No. Okay. Well, you know. No, I mean, you know, I, I, I think that I, I use my my role. I use content creation, communications, writing as kind of my creative outlet that writing used to take up. So, you know, I think it. I write just not in the way I thought I was going to. Yeah, you're filling the cup in a different way. Well. This again, it's it's been wonderful. We are at the end of our time. If people want to know more about you or they want to connect to you, they want to hear about Sales Loft and what you're doing, where can folks who are listening go to find you and connect with you? LinkedIn is probably the best place, easiest place, Lauren Goldfinger, but my name is not that common. So you can pretty much find it on all social medias. You could shoot me an email, lauren.goldfinger at salesloft.com. But I would say let's start on LinkedIn. Love it. Well, Lauren, thank you for being here, everyone. Thank you for listening. Once again, I am Christina Brady. This has been Taking the Lead. Taking the Lead is now a part of Motion's network of B2B marketing shows. We want to thank our friends, Justin Brown and Tristan Pellegrino over at Motion for helping us to put on this incredible show. We will see you all next time. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Taking the Lead. If you're looking for more inspiring stories from women leaders in B2B tech, then visit us at motionagency.io slash taking the lead.